At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we are going to be continuing a sermon series that we began uh, several weeks ago now called The New Normal. And this series is looking at Galatians chapters 1 and 2. And in these two chapters, what we are reminded of is that Jesus did not come just to add another layer to the religion that already existed. But Jesus actually came to normalize something new. He came to usher in a new covenant, a new arrangement between man and God. And that way that Jesus ushered in was through himself, that we would all have access to God through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And a number of weeks ago, we began seeing how this truth was something that Paul expounded for his friends at churches inside of the Galatian region of Asia in the first century. And this letter was preserved for us so that you and I might be encouraged from it even today. This morning, we're going to continue this series by looking at another section of these verses in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. But before we look at those verses today, I want to just kind of set them up by thinking about the nature of the church. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean the church as an entity because we are something organic. We're the the body of Christ. We're a congregation, a, a fellowship of brothers and sisters in Jesus. So there's that sense of it. But I want to think for just a moment about the nature of our assembly. When we gather on Sunday, we all file into this room, or we come in digitally into this shared space. And as we gather in this place, I just want to remind us that this is an open door. In other words, people, regardless of your week, regardless of your history, regardless of your background, regardless of your exposure in the past to Christian truth or teaching, the door was open to you, and you came in. And you gathered here, and it's a privilege for us to be able to gather with people from a variety of different experiences and backgrounds. But, you know, when I think about that, I think about what if other things in our life also just had an open door? And specifically, I was thinking about what if math classes were just open doors? So every math class in the world just had an open door, and anyone could walk inside. Well, you can imagine that there might be experiences where somebody just wanders into a class and they're going through basic arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals 4. But then someone else wanders into a different class and they're going through algebra or geometry or calculus. Now, someone who had no experience and no education in mathematics wandering into a calculus class might feel a little bit lost. And someone with a PhD from MIT might wander into the elementary mathematics class, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and might feel like it is a little basic. That was what would happen if math rooms were just open doors, like churches. And I say that because when we gather as a church family, my guess is that your first Sunday was some point in your life. And when you wandered into the church for the very first time, we may have been talking about what sounded like calculus to you. It might have been a Sunday where we were talking about the end times, or it might have been a Sunday where we were talking about heavenly rewards, or we might have been talking about predestination, which is the algebra two of the 
theology world, right? I mean, there may have been this advanced topic that we were discussing, and you came in, and you might have felt a little lost that day. Or you might have come basically having a PhD in Christianity, and it was a message that was about something very basic. And you might have felt like maybe it was just too basic for you that day. Well, I I share all of that this morning because through this open door, you have wandered into an assembly where we are going to have a message today, which is a basic Christian message, a two plus two equals four kind of message. And for some of you, you're like, sweet, maybe this will be the time that I understand what in the world you're talking about. But for others of you, you might be going, oh, okay, great. Another one of those. We were there. But, But here's the thing. I want you to think for a moment about who these verses in Galatians 2 were addressed to. It was a conversation between Paul and who? If you were here last week, who was he talking to? Peter. Apparently, Peter needed a 2 plus 2 equals 4 kind of conversation. And who was Peter? Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, right? And so if Peter needed this 2 plus 2 equals 4 kind of a message, my guess is that we need it as well. Because here's what I know. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the foundation of calculus. And the message we're going to see today though it may be basic, is the foundation to understanding Christian thinking and theology. And so when we come to these verses today, I believe that we're going to all be blessed regardless of where we are in our faith journey today as we look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 together. So with that set up, I want to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and we'll make two observations from these verses today. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, Paul continues his letter to his friends at the churches of Galatia, and he says this. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, friends, in those six verses, we're going to see two things today, which I believe are the two plus two equals four of the Christian world. Well, what are those two things that we need to see? The first thing we need to see is this. There is just one way to justification. There's just one way to justification. Now, when I put that up there, I know what some of you are thinking. Great. I thought this was supposed to be a basic message. And then you use that word in your first point. Who are you trying to kid, pastor? I understand. But we're going to talk about what justification means and why it is so central to our understanding of the Christian life. And we see that in verses 15 and 16 and then on down in verse 21. 
But before we look specifically at those verses, as we've done throughout this series, we need to remember the context of what Paul was talking about in these first couple of chapters of Galatians. See, Paul begins writing this letter to his friends at the church in churches in Galatia, and he reminds them again that both his ministry and his message were not of his own origin. They were not also borrowed from others, but they came from Jesus himself. He says that his role as an apostle was something that was not from men nor through man, but was through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the origin of Paul's ministry. Not only that, but Jesus was the origin of Paul's message. The message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed was the message both from Jesus and about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. And though Paul received this message directly from Jesus, and though it developed over a period of about 14 years in his personal life and ministry back in the city of Tarsus, when Paul finally comes face to face with Peter some 14 years later, they compare notes. And what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6 is that those who seemed influential, Peter and James and John, they had no edits to make to Paul's message. There was nothing that they needed to add, nothing that they wanted to change. Even though the messages that they were preaching have been developed independently, they were the same message. Why? Because they both came from Jesus himself. And so when we see this, it reminds us of the divine origin of the gospel message. And what is the gospel message? The gospel message is that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And salvation is through Jesus alone, not Jesus plus our ethnicity, Jesus plus being Jewish, Jesus plus our religiosity, Jesus plus anything. Our hope, our salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now, though that was the truth that both Paul and Peter proclaimed, Peter had trouble living that out. See, Peter had lived his entire life inside of a Jewish system that saw Jewish people as better than non-Jewish people. The the Bible word for non-Jewish people was Gentile. And Peter had lived out his life under this system, and so he really struggled, even though he understood that all people had access to God through the work of Jesus, he had a difficult time treating everyone equally, regardless of who else was around. And last Sunday, we saw that Peter believed a better message than he lived. And this event happened in the city of Antioch. It said, when when Peter came to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so we saw last week that Peter was having a hard time living out in the horizontal the truth that he had believed in the vertical, and Paul called him out on it. Well, we saw in general that that Paul called Peter out last week, but what was the argument that Paul gave? What was the, the, the reason why Peter was not to live his life that way? Well, Paul gives that answer in verses 15 through 21. I want to back up to verse 14 just so we can kind of get the overall context and flow of what he is saying here. But Paul writes and he says to Peter in front of the people of Antioch, 
He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, Peter, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he says, we, and who is the we? Paul and Peter. He says, we, Peter, you understand, I understand, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What was Paul beginning to get at here? Well, what Paul was reminding Peter of was something that Peter already knew to be true, and that was that their Jewishness had not saved them. The fact that they were from a Jewish background had not made them righteous before God. Now, what did it mean that they were Jewish? Well, what it meant that they were Jewish is that they were among the people who had received this body of truth, the Ten Commandments. They knew them. They could recite them. They even tried to obey them. And so they had the law. But not only did they have that, but being a Jew also meant that they had ceremonial laws and ways in which they worshiped and practices and the way that they washed their hands and the sacrifices that they gave and foods they ate and did not eat. And so they had all of that going on. And they were from a bloodline. They were from families that all were connected multi-generationally back inside of this group of people that God had had a relationship with in the past. So there were a number of things that Jewish people might have clung to to say that this is why God has accepted us. But what Paul reminds Peter of is he says, Peter, remember all of that stuff in our past is not how we got connected to God forever. It's not because of our adherence to the Ten Commandments, and it's, it's not because of our religious practice and ritual cleansings and the sacrifices that we offered, and, and it's, it's not because of the bloodline and our, who our parents were. But he says, remember, we have connected to God through Jesus and not because of our Jewishness. And so in the same way, Paul, I think, is, is kind of gigging Peter a little bit. He says, you know, we grew up in an environment where we call Gentiles sinners, but guess who also is a sinner? Us. We all have sinned and fall short, Paul would say. And so he says to Peter, it's not on the basis of these things that you and I were saved. So why in the world would we demand that other people who did not grow up the way that we do, do everything the way that we did? That's not how we were saved. That's not how they will be saved either. Now, were those things that Peter and Paul had grown up with, was there any value in them? Absolutely. They grew up knowing the stories of, of who God was and what He did and the way that He operated, and they understood His holy standard, and they understood that the wages of sin were death as they saw sacrifice after sacrifice offered in the temple. They understood. They had a context to understand all of what God was going to do for them through Jesus. They had families that had passed down that truth from generation to generation to generation. It no doubt was a blessing, but it was not what saved them. Just being a part of that system, a part of that group of people, was not what led to their salvation. Now, before we go any further, I want to hit pause for just a moment. I want to think about us. Because again, for the majority of us, growing up Jewish was not our experience. 
But many of us have grown up in environments where we might be tempted to think that our hope for eternity is based in our upbringing. Some might be here today and you might think, you know what, I have been on the birth rolls of first whatever church in whatever town. And when I was, before I was ever even able to crawl or, or to coo or anything, my parents brought me up in front of the church and they either put water on my head or they didn't and they just prayed over me. But from the very beginning, I grew up in this environment and I had that going for me. And then later on in life, I, I went to church every Sunday and I got a gold star by my name every week because I was there. And I went to vacation Bible school and I memorized all the verses and I made all the crafts. And I even brought some friends. And on Wednesday nights, I was a part of the Royal Whatevers, or I was a part of this Awana Club. And I I showed up, and I was a part of all of these things. And I was always in church, and I was always around, and I knew all of the answers. That might be some of your experience who is here today. And if that's the case, be thankful for the blessing of that legacy and heritage. But know this. That is not why you're saved, and that's not even how you're saved. You're not saved because you showed up. You're not saved because you figured it out. You're not saved because your religion was great enough. You're you're not saved for those reasons. Something else had to happen, and if you are, are, are honest and you think back through your story, you understand that. Our salvation is not found in our adherence to a religion or our education. Our salvation is found in Jesus alone. Now, for some of us, we we grew up with that in our background, and that's our story, and so we might connect with the Jewish side. But think about it for those who are in the room right now who did not grow up that way. There are others in this room right now who did not grow up inside of a church. And when I described all these things about the royal whatever and the Awana and this and the that, you thought that I was describing a cult. It sounds weird to you. I understand. But here's the thing. This is what's so beautiful inside of Christianity. If we're not saved because of our legacy and background, if we're not saved because of our bloodline and our heritage and what we learned when we were in the second grade, then that means there is equal hope for everyone in this room, regardless of your story, regardless of what you've done. That hope is found in Jesus. I think what Paul was saying to Peter was, he says, Peter, remember, our hope is not in our identifiers outside of Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus alone. And that's the same for you. And that's the same for me. Well, after this introduction and setup, he moves into really the the weight of his argument. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, here we are, 16 verses into chapter 2, and Paul finally pulls out this big shiny word, justify or justification. This is a critical concept for us to understand inside of Galatians. It's a critical concept for us to understand inside of Christianity. But what in the world does it mean? What is he talking about when he talks about over and over again? Uh, the, uh, Martin Luther once said of these verses, he said, apparently, 
God wanted to beat the truth of justification into our heads. And we find out that beating right here, as it's mentioned three different times, justification, justify, justify. Well, what does it mean, justification? Well, let's see a definition. Warren Wiersbe would say that justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. So what is justification? Justification is a word that is borrowed from the legal realm. It's a legal word. And what justification means is that God declares that we are righteous. That is the opposite of being declared condemned. In other words, if we were to stand before God, all of us in our lives have fallen short of God's glorious standard. All of us have done things that are worthy of condemnation or the judgment of God. But what justification does is justification says that when we stand before God, our judge, instead of saying that we are condemned, he says that we are righteous. Now, that is a remarkable turn, a remarkable turn. How is it that God could declare us righteous? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Who is the judge? Who is the one who can justify? Well, the only one who can justify is God himself. And that's not just because Wearsby says it. That's because the word of God says it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. God is the judge. Do you realize that I don't have the ability to declare you righteous before God? And not just me, but no one who stands on a stage like this can tell you that you're righteous. Friends, that's above my pay grade. Yet there is one who is able to declare us righteous. And the one who is able to declare us righteous is the God of the universe. One day, all of us will stand before him. And this reminds us that he is the only one who is able to say that we are righteous. He's the only one who is able to do something with our past record and declare us righteous in a moment that would usher us into eternity. I can't make that decision for you, but God can give it to you. God is the one who justifies. And God, the one who justifies, is willing to justify us in Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that we are justified or declared righteous by God. In other words... God looks at us and he looks at all of the things that we have done that are worthy of judgment, all the things that we have done where we have fallen short, things that we're ashamed that we don't even want our closest friends to know about, things that we would shy away from. God is aware of them. And when we stand before him, rather than him looking at us and saying, you are condemned because of that activity, if we have trusted in Christ, he looks at us and he says, I'm going to declare you righteous. Now, how can a just God justify sinful people. Well, he does it through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died on the cross, so everything that we have done that is worthy of condemnation was paid for as Jesus died for us. But Jesus didn't just die, he also lived. 
He lived a perfect life. In the righteousness that Jesus lived, God credits to us. And so in a moment, at the time that we profess faith in Christ, God declares over us that we are righteous. That's a remarkable statement, friends. If we have trusted in Christ, the God of the universe, knowing everything that we have done, looks at Brent and says, Brent, you are righteous. He looks at Eva and he says, Eva, you are righteous. And it's not because you've lived a perfect life. There's no yes buts in this because he's aware of all of it. It's because of what God has done for us in Christ that he is able to declare. And notice it's in the past tense. We have been justified. It's not something that we hope will happen. It's something that has happened. If you are trusting in Christ today, then we have an assurance that when we stand before God one day, that he will look at us and say, you are not condemned to hell, but you are welcome in heaven because you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the hope of the gospel. It's not in what we do for God, but in what God has done for us. Now, let's look at this for a moment. Inside of verse 16, uh, again, when he talks about justification, he basically paints two big categories that describe how people might be justified. One of those categories is that we might be justified by the works of the law. The other category is that we might be justified by faith in Christ. But throughout verse 16, there is no ambiguity that though these are two options, they are not two equal options. One of these is describing the path of every religion that exists in the world today, save one, and that is the works of the law. Now, the works of the law vary from religion to religion, but every religion in the world basically has some equation that goes like this. Do enough good things, don't do that many bad things, and you're going to be okay in the end. Now, That is the definition of every religion. But notice what it says. By the works of the law, no one is justified. But there's another alternative. If this describes every religion, it describes Islam and Hinduism and Judaism even, and and many even expressions of Christianity, the way people have understood it. it. It's a works of the law kind of faith. But He says, no, 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 there's another way, and that way is not through our works. That way is through Christ's work and us embracing it in faith. Those are the only two options, either by our works or by God's grace that we're saved. And again, it's not as though these are two equal options. Only one of them is effective for justification. Only one of them is effective for salvation, and that is the Jesus way. He is the way here. It's interesting, as Paul describes this, basically this is what he is saying. He says, you know why I'm so exercised about this point? Because the works of the law, though it is a common way of thinking, it's a lie. It does not deliver what it promises. Paul says, I'm going to be agitated and excited and aggressive to make sure that you understand that there is only one way by which someone is saved, and that is the way through Jesus Christ. 
John Stott makes this statement about it. He says, it, salvation by our own works has been the religion of the ordinary man both before and since the time of Jesus. It is the religion of the man in the street today. Indeed, it is the fundamental principle of every religious and moral system in the world except New Testament Christianity. It is popular because it is flattering. It tells a man that if he will only pull his socks up a bit higher and try a bit harder, he will succeed in winning his own salvation. It's flattering, but it's a lie. The only way for us to be saved is through Jesus himself. Now, given that, I want to go back to something we talked about last last Sunday. The implications of our sin, the implications of our fallenness, basically have two dimensions. The, The vertical, us and God, and the horizontal, the way that we relate to others. As it relates to the vertical dimension, our sinfulness has created the problem that justification tries to solve, our separation from God. The solution to that, we've seen very clearly in this passage, is faith in Jesus. It is faith in Jesus that solves our vertical problem. If you feel disconnected from God and you want to reconnect with Him, know where it begins. It begins by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to have faith? Well, Stott continues and tells us about it. He says, faith in Jesus Christ then is not intellectual conviction only, but it's personal commitment. The expression in the middle of verse 16 is literally, we have believed into Christ Jesus. It's an act of committal, not just assenting to the fact that Jesus lived and died, but running to him for refuge and calling on him for mercy. The fix to the vertical break in our relationship with God is found by believing and trusting and seeking refuge and mercy in Jesus himself. This is the two plus two equals four of Christianity. Now, I know that for many of you, you have trusted Christ at some point in the past, but I don't want to take for granted that there are not people in the room today that have never trusted in Christ. And so before we go any further, I want us to just take a moment and bow your heads And I want us to pray. And I'm going to pray. And if the way that I pray is consistent with what God is stirring in your heart and what you believe, I want you to reaffirm that prayer to the Lord silently to Him, knowing that you're either expressing what has already been true or where you are beginning a new relationship with Him today. But let's pray. Father God, thank You for this this moment. Thank You for this moment when we are reminded that Our own actions deserve condemnation, but your grace has given us the righteousness of Jesus instead. You have declared us something that we would not be on our own by your grace and by your mercy. We thank you that we can run to you for mercy and forgiveness and hope and life. And we pray that we would rest in you and in the hope and the forgiveness that you provide in him. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we see the vertical break solved by faith in Christ. But the second thing that we need to be reminded of is the horizontal. And when we think of the horizontal, we are reminded again that if salvation is not by our works and not by our heritage and not by how we grew up and not by how much we know, but if salvation is truly through Jesus himself, then that means the 
all of us are gathering at a level field at the foot of the cross. And what does that do? Well, it ought to change the way that we relate to one another. Rather than spending our time trying to rank each other in the, in the Christian scale, who's better than who, all of those kinds of things, we would treat each other equally with a certain dignity and support, Think something that Peter had forgotten. He was treating Jews one way and Gentiles another. We might treat people that grew up inside the church one way and people that didn't grow up inside the church another way as if our growing up in the church is what saved us. You know, people that grew up in the church, we, we know how to talk the talk. We knew what justification was before I said it. Somebody else might not, but there's no second-class citizen in this kingdom. We gather at a level field because it's not in what we know. It's in what Jesus has done that we find our hope. Some of us need to have our minds and our hearts corrected and brought in line with what we believe, as we see in this passage. Now, I want to continue and see something that that Paul mentioned at the end of this chapter. He says at the end of this chapter, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's he talking about here? Well, what Paul is saying is he says, if it's possible for works of the law to save someone, then Jesus' death was not necessary. If there was another way to be saved, then Jesus died needlessly. And it was, it was a cruel death. He was crucified in public. He was humiliated for crimes he did not commit. If he did not need to do that, then he died needlessly. But Paul says he absolutely needed to do it. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. But thanks be to God who, while we were still sinners, sent Jesus to die for us. It was necessary for him to die, and we need to remember that. If we ever try to add our righteous behavior as the means to our salvation, we are lessening the grace of God. And we are diminishing the need of Christ's death on our behalf. One commentator described it this way. He said, if, if you are, are at your house and the house is on fire and someone comes up to you and, and they look at your house that's on fire and they see you and you say, my house is on fire, but all of my people are out here. All of my children are here with me. My spouse is here. My friends are here. There's no one inside. It's, it's just a house. And if that person looks at surveys that situation and then says, I'm going to go into that house and I'm going to save your children, you would say, no, 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 you don't need to. They are here. But what if they went in anyway? And as they go inside, the house collapses and they died on the inside. You would have some sense of they died foolishly. They died needlessly. If they just would have listened, there was another way, a way that had already been enacted. But if you take that same scenario and you said, my house is on fire, but my children are inside, and somebody came by and said, I'm going in after them, and they went in and they gathered up your children and they brought them out safely, and then the house collapsed on them and they died, you would not say that they died needlessly. You would say they died a hero. Friends, that's what happened with Christ. He did not come to just do something nice or to put on some kind of performance art. He came to do what was necessary to save you and to save me. Say it another way. It is by God's grace and not my case that I'm saved. Some of you like rhymes. Others of you are rolling your eyes. It's okay. Here we go. It is by God's grace and not my case that I'm saved. By God's grace, not whatever I could argue on my behalf, but only upon what Jesus has done for me 
that we have any hope at eternity. There's just one way to justification, and that way is the Jesus way. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to quickly cover one more point that will help set us up for next Sunday uh, as we look at this a little more in depth. Just as there is only one way for justification, so also there is just one way to true life. There's really one way to live. There are a number of options about how we might live, but true life is only found in one spot, and that spot is in the same spot where our justification is found. It's found in Christ alone. And this comes clear in verses 17 through 19 as Paul is answering a common objection to Christianity. See, a common objection that Paul faced when he preached the gospel was this, if salvation is not on the basis of my works, why should I work at all? If salvation is not dependent upon me doing right, then why would I pursue righteousness at all? As a matter of fact, if it's just on the basis of what Jesus did and what he did was 2,000 years ago, I've got my fire insurance. Why not live as crazy as I want to today? That's a question that was being asked of Paul, and it's a question that really could reasonably be asked of anyone who rightly understands the gospel message. How does Paul answer it? Well, he describes it, first of all, in verse 17. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, not only the gospel he preached, but if that gospel came from Jesus, and Jesus is saying, it's not by your works, it's by mine, isn't he just encouraging us to sin? Isn't he just a servant of sin? Well, Paul answers that in this phrase, certainly not. In the original language of Greek, there's a phrase there that actually should be translated this way, no way, Jose, right? That's what it, that's what it says. Um, absolutely not. May it never, ever, ever be. There's no way we should think that way. Now, why? Well, he goes on. He says, if we were to live that way, we would be rebuilding the law as if the law or some religion, some practice would be able to do for me what Christ is only able to do for me. And, and what the law does is it only has the ability to prove us a sinner or a transgressor. Listen to what Peter said about the law and the experience of the Jewish people back in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10. He says to his Jewish friends, he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? If we construct some kind of path of of behavior that ultimately would lead to our being declared righteous by God, all that will do is ultimately prove that we are not able to live up to it. We will fall short of the standard of Scripture. We also will fall short even to the standards that we make ourselves because of just the nature of who we are. Paul says, we cannot just build up some law and think that it will somehow create a path for us to live our Christian life. He says, it's ultimately only found in Christ. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Friends, it's as if he is saying this, our salvation is not found in a system. It's found in a Savior who did for us what we could not do on our own. But as He has saved us, 
He has made it possible for us to live a life now to God. If you were to put this in a different phrasing, we might say this. Paul's reason why we should live out a different life now is not so that we might be saved, but because we have been saved. Say it another way, we are not who we used to be, therefore we do not live as we used to live. If we are found in Christ, then our identity has changed. And next week, we're going to see really the the, the crowning jewel of Galatians chapter 2 that describes what it looks like for us to live out our lives in Christ today. And we're going to see that life played out for us there. But, you know, it's, it's just interesting. When we think about the Christian life today, often we think of the Christian life um, like a 16-year-old. You come into a room like this, and uh, we, we teach you about Christianity, and we say, do this and don't do that. That'd be like going to a 16-year-old and telling them, this is how you drive, and giving them driving lessons, and then even giving them a car. But if we never put fuel in the tank of that car, they would never be able to drive it anywhere. When we think about our Christian life, it's more than just us knowing how to drive. But ultimately, we need the fuel to drive the life that God has called us to drive. And that fuel we'll find described for us and laid out for us in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And we're going to look at that together next Sunday. My cousin who's watching in in, uh, Bixby last week said, listening to you preach right now sounds like a, a serial. You know, I've got, to, I've got to come back the next week to get the next installment. That, you've got to come back next week because we're going to land this series in one verse that describes the way that we live out our Christian life. We'll be there next week. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just the hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you that you have saved us in him and that you have offered us hope for all time. I pray now that you would help us to live out that life, not so that we might get to you, but because we are in you and we are your children. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.